Hello and welcome to another episode of What's Normal with Gabriel Sanders. Hello, I am Gabriel Sanders. And this episode is titled, Being Extraordinarily Unordinary. And those words are in quotes in the title to honor the amazing book written by first-time author Simone Canego. Her book is titled, The Extraordinary Unordinary You, Follow Your Own Path, discover your own journey. And I gotta tell you, it was a fantastic read. We get into her book in detail in the episode and how I essentially, I wrote an, a book report to prepare for our talk. I haven't dropped an episode for a bit because I've been working, which is a great thing. I'm not complaining, I'm fortunate and thankful. I count my blessings daily. So haven't dropped an episode in a while, but if you like my podcast, Please subscribe to get first notice of when each episode drops. And please rate and review if you like this episode or other episodes. Thank you so much for that. Simone Canego's Normal is experiencing and still being on an extraordinary journey. We all have extraordinary journeys. I believe, if you really think about it, just think about your journey and the path of where you've been and where you are today. But she shared her journey. She wanted to share her journey in her book to show how anyone can be extraordinary unordinary. It was such a pleasure to have a conversation with Simone, such an amazing person with an incredible story. And you hear me say, wow, <laughs> a couple of times throughout our talk. She says that she's constantly searching for balance in her happily unbalanced life. Think about that. Searching for balance in a happily unbalanced life. Can you relate to that? I know I can. I'm always searching for balance and that's where yoga comes in. That's where meditation comes in. Even, and this is brought up, not making mountains out of molehills, right? How we stress over little things. How little things use up way too much of our energy and time. We get into uh, how our lives impact others and how, we in how our interactions with humanity is so very important. And while we're on our own personal journey and how we face the challenges we face, to be open to learning as we go so we can better ourselves and to not put blinders on, to know that everyone around us, everything around us is also part of the journey. And that is also the people, the roles that people play around us and how we interact with them and their roles and how we define them by their roles and how we define ourselves by our role. But I'm also burying the lead, I guess you can say. Simone adopted three of her six children. And I'm sure quite possibly there are some questions or maybe assumptions going through your head. Well, all that is covered in our talk and in her book each child's experience in life and how she met each child, how she approached each child, how she became a parent of each child, and how she met their home villages and families. Beautiful and eye-opening stories. For if you don't want to adopt, if you do want to adopt, if you're a parent, if you're not a parent, just amazing stories to listen to. Being a parent, an adoptive parent, any type of parent, is an experience no matter how much information you're given is an experience you cannot really prepare for 
But as a parent, you can be the most intellectual person in the world. No matter how young or old your child is, you will still learn from them. You'll still learn from them because they're they're seeing the world with bright eyes. They're a growing human being. They're still learning, and to be open to their experiences, to become a better person, better parent, better individual from your kids. The fact that I'm away from my kids so often is a learning experience for me. We send videos to each other. We use an app called Marco Polo. We have some phone calls here and there, and we send pictures to each other. And even if there's not a specific learning moment or lesson, there's a knowing and understanding, a realization, and energy. And speaking about energy, I guess the power that we have as a as a human being, the power behind someone to climb a mountain, like Simone did, she climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. She was sponsored by Live Strong Foundation. The link for that foundation is on the description page for the episode. But we get into the why and how she did that—an incredible story. And there's other great stories and values to live by. It was just a wonderful conversation. So I want to let the talk do the talking. And there's also the book that you can buy and read and and consume as I did. But I spoke about roles earlier. I just want to mention and give a little light to the important role of being a stay-at-home or solo parent. That is a defining role. It's a job that is not viewed as a job because it's an essential position to be in. But there's not much support out there. America's parental leave is still horrible, still one of the worst in the world, and moms and stay-at-home parents. Don't get the financial support that they need and deserve. Let me talk about that. So again, it's been a few weeks since I dropped an episode, but I am working now. I'm thankful for that. And with that comes being away from the family across the country. This is what I have to do. You know, it, this is the, my unexpected journey. I never thought I'd be doing this type of of living. I don't live by expectations. But this is the path that's rolling out for me, and、um, I always say with my wife Carrie that we we can't force things; things will come naturally as they are meant to be. But what happens when you feel that something slipped through the cracks, or you lost an opportunity? Is that part of the path? When you feel that you lost an opportunity to get something, buy something, do something, go somewhere, especially during this time of COVID. When、uh, everything is really limited, and rules have changed, and things like that, are we losing opportunities, or are we being pushed to a different path of our journey, or is this the journey that we're supposed to be on? Big questions. But what are you thankful for? Don't wait until Thanksgiving to be thankful, or think of things to be thankful for. Take a moment, think about it. I think about these things. Just think about one thing: thankful for where you are, the job you have,、uh, the health you have,、um, your talents, the people in your life, your family. So many things. So I'll include a link to buy Simone Kinego's book, *The Extraordinary Unordinary You*, on the description page of the episode. Very insightful, very relatable. 
She's a great storyteller, writer, conversationalist. Please enjoy my talk with Simone Canego. There are morsels of wisdom in our talk. I hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. Absolutely, my pleasure. Oh wow, you have my book. I have your book. Oh, thank you. The title of your book just pulled me in. The extraordinary, unordinary you, and I didn't just read it. I engulfed it. I consumed it. I notated it. I wow, dog-eared it. So I made, honored. Oh, um, I made notes on it because your your journey and how you talk about your journey and your normal is just so. It really hit so many similar themes to to my life. Familiar themes. Uh, concepts. I have not adopted any new children. I have not climbed Kilimanjaro. But everything you say, your 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 pathos, your ethos, everything that goes through the connectivity of, of the book uh, and what you talk about, amazing and 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 beautiful. I think it's not just you say uh, you know empowering women. It's for empowering anybody, really. Yeah. So, you know, it's actually an interesting piece to this is that, so when you write a book, when you are a motivational speaker, you, you really need to focus on an audience. Right. right. And so, you know, my messaging, because I'm a woman was really towards women, because these are the things that I struggled with, you know, realizing what I was capable of. But now that I'm, I'm working on doing a big keynote, um, every time I'm on a podcast, you know, it's the men that come back with the, more men need to hear this, which is, which is, mm. you know, so interesting. And so, you know, on, honestly, I love that, but, you know, kind of um, taking a step back and thinking, okay, you know, you do have to start with a narrow audience, but you can adjust it for any audience. So. Mm -hmm. And so what did bring you to finally saying, I want to write this down. I want to share my journey and write this into a book. So taking a step back. And this, I think is the most empowering thing is that I am not a writer. Oh, I beg to differ. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. I'm a, okay. I'm a storyteller. Okay. Right. But you know, when I came to my family and I said, I really want to write this yeah. and my husband was like, go for it. Yeah. And how are you going to do this? Um, so, I mean, that, that in itself was a great conversation in that, again, realize what you're capable of. You don't have to be a writer to then write a book. Like you can start at any point in your life doing something different. So the way the book came about was that I was doing some public speaking through volunteer work that I was doing. And I was going to different communities and sharing my story. And every time I shared my story, people would tell me that, wow, you're so inspiring. Do you have a book? Mm no, I don't have a book. You should write a book. Well, I'm not a writer. Okay. Again, labeling myself as something, you know, like what's, you know, how we start everything. Mm -hmm. And so the more, the more times people said that to me, the more I took a step back and kind of looked at myself and said, does that matter that you're not a writer? You have all these stories to share. And this is what you love doing is sharing your stories. And, and my end goal is if I can impact one person, if I can change one person's mind, then I've truly, um, I've done my, I've done my job. I've, it was worth sharing the stories of my family. It was worth sharing the struggles and still is. I mean, so that's kind of like, that's kind of how it, you know, really 
came to fruition um, from there, it was mm-hmm. the, the best part, I think, for me is that my I didn't let anybody in my family read it before I was completely done, like okay. edited everything except for um, my middle daughter, because I would run word choices by her. I'm like, what do you think about this word? And she's like, I don't love it. Let's try this, you know? And so she was really, she was really great, but I didn't have my husband read it because again, I think a big part of sharing your stories is your perspective. And as soon as I, you know, got anybody else involved in it, it would no longer just be my story and my perspective. It would have their added piece. So the best part was when my husband read it. And uh, after the, you're not a writer, um, he stayed up all night and he, he's like, I read it twice. And he's, he's like, I was going to support you no matter what. Mm -hmm. He's like, I obviously I love you. And so I'm going to support you because this is what you wanted to do. But he's like, I am so impressed. I can't, I can't believe it. Like, he's like, I can believe it because you're Simone, (laughs) but I also like, I, I am so impressed. So like, that was a great, that was a great moment. That's beautiful. You already a very busy person. You already have a family. What brought you to adopt? You have six children. Correct. Three of them are adopted. Correct. Which is incredible and amazing. And the, the stories you share about your children are beautiful and, and sad too. It puts a lot of things into perspective, how children live, how families live. You talk about the value of a child in other countries, which was just shocking yeah how did you initially think that you wanted to adopt a child your first adopted child was noah yeah so we had our first child jacob and then there's a four-year gap in between jacob and emma so i wasn't getting pregnant and so the discussion actually started back then like okay like do we want to do this is you know is this the direction of our family that kind of stuff and we said yes and then, of course, as soon as we started doing the paperwork, uh, I I went to an infertility specialist and he saw me one time. He didn't do anything. And he said, tell your friends I'm the best specialist in the world because you're already Oh, pregnant. he took the credit. <laughs> so, yeah, he was joking, though. Um, you know, so it went to the back burner. And mm. then we moved. We lived in Texas for five years. And we had two kids when we moved from Texas. And then we had our third child in Florida. And then we kind of said it's kind of now or never, like we're at the point in our lives that, you know, let's, let's make the decision. And we made the decision that it's now. And, you know, looking, looking at it, there just are so many amazing kids in the world, just waiting for a family to love them. And we really felt like we could be that family. Um, And everybody was truly on board, you know, from day one, when they were little, of course, it was like, Oh, cool. I'm getting a new sibling. Um, but, you know, in the book, I talk about that we went through this process of making a decision. And I had someone ask me the other day, well, if you would have gotten pregnant again, would you have asked your kids, is it okay for me to get pregnant again? And I said, I would have never asked that, you know? Yeah. For me, I, I never even thought about it like that. But in terms of adoption, it was asking the other kids, you know, like it ha- we had to be unanimous in our decision making because it's not just my husband and I raising a child, especially when we're beyond zone defense with, you know, now we're talking four children, then five children, then six children. Um, Everybody has to help out. So, you know, that was kind of the the thing behind the voting is that, you know, if if we're not all on board, then, you know, we we want everybody to be included in the process. So they feel like it's adding something versus taking something away. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. And that was really powerful for us. It worked for us. It worked for you. That's so beautiful. 
Can you tell us, can you talk about the airplane story? I wrote down, we must talk about the airplane story. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about Noah. Noah. So Noah is now uh, 14 years old. He is mm. an amazing human. He's our son from South Korea. And that was our first journey with adoption. And mm. when we adopted Noah, uh, my husband stayed home because we already have three kids at home. He's actually stayed home with the girls and um, our oldest son came with me to bring Noah home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you have an idea in your mind of how things are going to go. It's never how things go, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we met Noah um, and he had an amazing foster mom and she just, she was totally in love with him. So the day that we were able to take him with us, she definitely, she was crying when we left and she had raised, I can't remember how many other foster children. She was truly an amazing woman. And so she cried when we left and, and then he started crying Oh wow! Mm -hmm. and there was nothing we could do. <laughs> so we got in the, the, the cab and made it back to the hotel. Even the taxi driver was trying to help us. And, you know, we were like, okay, you know, and it's one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I've done this three times. How am I failing? Again, a really important lesson of that. This is all part of our journey. Yeah. So we get a couple hours of sleep. Maybe that night we yeah. get on, we get to the airport the next day and I think, okay, I think I finally, I've got this. And um, we're sitting there waiting to get on the plane. He's quiet. We get on the plane. We sit down. Instantly, he starts crying. Oh, wow. He cried 16 out of the 18 hours on our flight from Seoul to Chicago. Wow. I thought I was being smart. Like I was like, okay, okay I'm going to spend this money and I'm going to get a seat that lies flat. And my son, the old, our oldest son loved it because he was like, you know, he stayed and he watched the movies yeah, and he course. ate the food. Mm -hmm. I stood in the galley mm. the entire time. Oh. And finally there was a moment and constantly people were pulling the curtain back and, you know, I could, I couldn't wow. get him to calm down. You know, I'm sure part of it was the altitude. I'm sure his ears bothered him. His stomach bothered him, but this poor kid, like, you know, he has lost everything. I mean, he was only a baby, but still like he, you know, yeah. and I don't know how to make this work. The whole experience, I'm sure, just being on the plane. What's a plane to him? Yeah, everything was, you know, again, it was, I'm sure the whole thing was overwhelming. And, yeah. you know, we, um, one of the flight attendants offered to help. And I was like, please help me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so she took him and um, put him on her back and basically bent over at like a 90 degree angle, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And you could just see his eyes going. And she's like, that's the mm. Korean way. And I was like, okay, I never knew that. But that she, she mm. said that was how her family always did it with their, the babies. They would bend over and bounce them like that. And he hated being on his back. He liked being on his stomach. And that, that was something we learned very oh. quickly, but that was a really hard trip home because you know, you're, you're doing everything that you know to do. And that kind of, that's the next thing is that just because you think you know something, you don't necessarily know it. You have to learn as you go. And uh, so he, since we've met him, he is a lesson in learning as you go. He is an amazing kid, but still keeps us on us on our toes with, um, you know, he is ADHD on the spectrum and lots of sensory issues, but he adds so much value to our lives. He is such That's a cool amazing. kid. Um, and I'm a way different person than when I started this part of my journey because I've learned so much from him, um, so much patience from him. And the way he looks at things is completely different than the way I look at things. And it just, again, another important lesson of how, you know, what we can take away from our, our children, you know, and how they see the world. That's a beautiful story and lesson too, definitely.
I run a I run a dad's group on Facebook, the supportive dads group. And a lot of the questions come up is my baby is crying, what should I do? Uh, my baby's doing this, what should I do? A lot of a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of dads only know what they know and then they get stuck. Um, but every child is different. So you have to learn from your child. But the similar things of um, how do I get my baby to sleep? Or my baby doesn't like tummy time. What should I do? Well, there's no there's no set rules. Every child is different. Yeah. I always say that everyone has a story, but even your child, they could be a couple of months old. They'd be newborn. They're teaching you right away. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I I would love to go back. Okay. Because your normal, which has changed and conformed as you've gone from adopting Noah to um. Ari and, yeah, Ari and then Millie. Millie, that's right. Um, people think, and you've talked about this in the book, why adopt? Um, do you have a lot of money? Is there a religious thing? Um, what are you trying to prove? Um, don't you have enough children? And this is not the things, judgments that I think, but these are things that I've, I've heard about, that have been talked about. Why do you feel that you needed to adopt three children? Yeah. And then I want to connect that to your upbringing but there had to been some impulse like let's just adopt another one let's just adopt another one so it is interesting because people do make assumptions from the beginning oh she must be religious Mm -hmm. or you know um you know or she can't have any more kids or you know different things that come to mind that had nothing to do with why we chose to adopt yeah i think after we adopted noah the plan wasn't to have six children. Honestly, the original plan was to have one child. Okay. So, (laughs) so, you know, if we look at it that way, this is how, you know, your journey completely Mm -hmm. changes. So after we adopted Noah, I think we saw like how, um, how much he impacted our Mm -hmm. lives in such a positive way. Things that we, you know, think things that we never knew we were capable of and taking a step back from that, like, you know, one of the things I always want to talk about with adoption is that there's no savior moment here. There isn't like we came in and we rescued kids. I mean, people instantly assume that as well. And I think what people have to understand is that, you know, these children start at a place of loss and, you know, our job, you know, as, as their family is to build them up. It's not to rebuild because we don't want to replace anything that was already there, but to really kind of, you know, make them understand that they are, our family, we love them and we care about every, every aspect of their lives. And Mm -hmm. so those are, you know, those are the comments that we would get a lot. Oh, your kids are so lucky. I'm like, actually, you know, they, you know, they lost everything they had. So, you know, I'm not sure what's lucky about that. You know, maybe the only lucky part is that we have such a strong family and we're so proud of who we are and so proud of our children. Maybe that would be the only thing I would say. But after we adopted Noah, you know, going back to your original question, um, you know, we really felt like, okay, this has impacted our family so much, you know, Mm. what do you think guys, should we do it again? And everybody was like, yes, let's do it again. And every country had different rules. Most programs are closed at this point. There's a few programs still open in the country. Um, For example, South, I don't even know the status of South Korea, but it was closed for a bit. So when we went back to, you know, adopt again, we, we said, okay, let's take a look. And South Korea, their 
um, rule at the time was the older oldest parent couldn't be older than 43. Oh, and my husband was, he's 10 years older than me. So he was 43 when we adopted Noah. So we couldn't oh. go back to South Korea. Oh, interesting. So then we, yeah. I mean, and each, each country um, has, has had different requirements. And so it's mm -hmm. very country specific on what, you know, what is allowed and what isn't allowed for adoption. And so we looked at, you know, other countries that would, you know, kind of fit our family. Mm -hmm. And there were countries that you could go, you'd have to stay for a couple of months. You know, that's not realistic in our lives, right? We already now have four kids at home. Right. And, you know, we really, we fell in love with Ethiopia and the culture, the people, you know, really the, you know, the children that have been relinquished, again, have had some kind of hardship or horrible experience in their lives that kind of led to them to this point where they have been relinquished. Mm -hmm. So that was really powerful for us. And again, we don't, um, we totally see color. We don't, everybody has the same value to us. So that was never even part of the discussion. And we, we did, we fell in love with Ethiopia and we decided actually for this adoption that, okay, we've done We've, we've done four babies now. Okay. We had three, we adopted one baby. <laughs> Noah was four months old when he came home. And so we said, let's ask for an older child. Um, and we said between four and 10 and we were matched with Ari. Mm. He was four and a half years old. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is truly an amazing human being. Oh. And when I met him, um, when we walked into the orphanage, he was he was sitting at the table eating his lunch. And this is a kid who was truly starving. He had rickets. He mm. had ringworm all over his oh. scalp. He oh. had never, he has scars. He's still, I mean, obviously scars are scars. Oh. He has scars all over the bottom of his feet because he had never owned a pair of shoes before he got to the orphanage. Mm -hmm. And um, so the, the first time I met him, I sat down next to him. He was eating his lunch and they had prepared him that we were coming and we had to send a photo album and so that they could explain what was happening. And so when I sat down next to him, this kid who was truly starving, you know, was feeding me his food. Wow. And that was such a powerful moment mm -hmm. for me. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you go into something, you don't know mm -hmm. what to expect. Even once you're in it, you don't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that was kind of like a, from the beginning, he was, you know, holding my hand attached to me. And he was so, he was just such a cool kid. He, he was really funny because he, and he's still today, he, he sees the big picture. He sees the little picture. Uh -huh. He's very athletic. And uh -huh. he, um, so at the orphanage, like I would go to put something down and he's like, like he's shaking his finger at me, like, don't put it down. It will be gone in two he seconds knows. because if it's something different, like the kids all want to check it out. And you know, it is like whoosh, ripped apart in two seconds. Wow. And so uh, he was very um, to the point where when, you know, he would come over, we stayed at a guest house attached to the orphanage. And so at the beginning, he wasn't allowed to stay in our room until after we did a visit with the birth family. And so um, he would, we would bring him over in the morning. Um, we brought clothes with us. And so he put on the clothes that like, this was like a big deal to him. He yeah, would put on the clothes that we brought and the shoes that we mm -hmm. brought. But then every night before he would go to sleep back at the orphanage, he he insisted on taking everything off and leaving it with us because he didn't, you know, it was important to him and he didn't want it to disappear. Right. Um, yeah. Just such a cool kid. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, so sweet. Um, the the value of things to, to someone, even just shoes. It's so important that 
do you remember when he first put on, you gave him sneakers? Do you remember how he was, how he reacted when you first got these sneakers to put on his feet? And did he ever share how he, how it felt on his feet? You know, it's interesting. I never, I never asked him. He mm -hmm. actually, once he was at the orphanage. So before we gave him shoes, he had shoes at the orphanage. Uh -huh. He wore this pink pair of Crocs, which was amazing. Oh. <laughs> so he would wear these pink uh -huh. Crocs all over the orphanage, but the shoes we brought were on like Velcro sneakers. And that to him was like, okay, this is amazing. You know, let me, <laughs> let me show you how Velcro works, mom, um, 5 million times a day. Uh, -huh, yeah. uh but you know, like that we was... all love the sound. Well, we all love it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so he, you know, and, and it was really interesting because, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, he would take it all off and put on the shoes that were too small uh -huh. to go back over to the orphanage because these were now things that were his. And he right. understood that even though we had like three words, like we didn't, um, you know, obviously he didn't speak English uh, mm -hmm. and he spoke a, a tribal language. Oh. So he didn't speak the main language mm -hmm. of Ethiopia. And uh -huh. so we had we had like a few words for for the trip home like you know hungry thirsty pee mm -hmm. stop mm -hmm. um don't run off <laughs> which is the stop word uh -huh. um, but you know like uh, that was it and wow. and he learned so quickly it was amazing wow that's a beautiful story what i found fascinating with with each adoption that you talk about in your book i never thought about this that you actually go and visit the family to see if they like you, you they feed you, if you can eat the food, um, to learn more about the child's upbringing, which I think is fascinating. But in each case, the family, for whatever reason, could not take care of another child. And so they gave up their baby. They gave up the youngest child. Such a, such a sad thought. But I, I wonder why, in each instance, if the family had to give up uh, or put, you know, let someone adopt their child, it wasn't an older child with those experiences as well is it every time was just a younger child so realistically um when people choose to adopt most of the time they and i'm i'm, I'm over generalizing mm -hmm. here but i'm saying from what i know mm -hmm. is that people would choose to adopt a baby or a toddler a couple things with that one is that if you haven't you know haven't given birth to a child before, um, having that baby stage might be really important to you. The other piece is that, um, you know, a lot of people feel that if they're adopting a child who is older, they already have gone through a lot in their lives. They already have, you know, these, these pieces that, you know, mm -hmm. will be with them forever. Um, you know, emotional struggles that, that might stay forever. And so I think most families are, you know, in a, in a realistic sense, say mm -hmm. that, you know, that a, a younger child has the greatest probability of being adopted. Right. And also, mm -hmm. you know, especially like in Ethiopia, like, you know, what we picture of, you know, looking out my window is nothing like, you know, it was in Ari's village or in Millie's village. I mean, they live in mud huts. Yeah. There's no running water. Wow. You walk to the well, right? Mm -hmm. You walk to the well or to the river to get water. Wow. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of the family structure, you know, mm -hmm. for the older children, they're part of, you know, getting the, the day done. Mm -hmm. They're, they're part of helping with the chores that need to be done. Right. So obviously, you know, that brings more value. Mm -hmm. I should say value, not really value, but it helps a lot. It helps a lot for okay. the family. So I think that that is a big part of why this happens. I don't think anybody in the world 
truly ever wants to um, have to relinquish their child. I just don't think that's part of the human thought process. But I think sometimes you really have to do what's best for your family. And when when we're talking about a country like Ethiopia, where food is a big issue, yeah, you know, you, you can look back to the famines in in mm-hmm. Ethiopia to kind of really have that discussion. But you know, for Ari's family, you know, there wasn't enough food to put on the table, and so that's how the discussion began because they couldn't feed everybody. So it's a really a really hard discussion. I can't even imagine the decision. But that's the decision they had to make. Yeah. I cannot oof, picture myself being in that situation at all. Um, the The title of the book is The Extraordinary Unordinary You. Now, I don't live by expectations and the things that happen, we say, oh, I didn't expect that. But when you were growing up, did you ever feel like you're being pulled in a certain direction on your journey, that there was more to this, that you felt... Uh, your story, your journey is not just about adopting children. You do amazing, fascinating things. You're the co-chair for the National Young Leadership Cabinet for the Jewish Federations of North America. Right. You're now a, a fantastic published writer. And there's a lot more to you. But when you were growing up, did you feel like you were on a path already or did you need to find a path? What do you feel like your normal was then compared to today? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely I didn't know what I wanted for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I've tried many things, but growing up, you know, I had very strong parents. I had mm-hmm. amazing, you know, my dad passed away almost two years ago. Oh. My mom, my mom is still alive. She lives in Sarasota as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have very interesting journeys themselves. My mom, um, I'll tell my mom's journey because she, okay. Uh, she grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Her mom had a sixth grade education. Oh. Her dad worked in the coal mines wow. and a local brewery. And she knew she wanted to be educated. She's super smart. Yeah. And she just, she didn't see a library until she was in 10th grade. Wow. That's one of the most fascinating things, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, but she knew she wanted to be educated. And so mm-hmm. she started working for another family as a teenager, saving all her money, applied to the University of Pittsburgh, got in and- Worked three jobs, applied to medical school, was one of five women in her medical school class. Wow. And all five of them graduated and practiced. Incredible. So like she had her journey. My dad was also a physician. He's got a great story as well, you know, in terms of he grew up in, it's a long story, so I'll tell the short version of he grew up in um, Israel. Um, He was actually in Israel before Israel was a state. Um, He his family was from Germany. They had escaped from the Holocaust. Oh, and wow. So at some point, his parents wanted to move back. And so they asked him to come back to Germany with them after he finished in the Israeli army. My dad did not speak German. It was not something they did at home. Um, they really, you know, when they left Germany, wow. that was kind of like, you know, a cutting point, at least at that point. And so they encouraged him to come back to Germany Uh, He wanted to go to medical school. He didn't speak German. And so my grandfather translated for my dad at his medical school interview. That's incredible. He got in. Wow. Yeah, it's actually such a cool story. He got in. Um, He was second in his class. He learned German while he was in medical school. 
Wow. And he was second in his class, which kind of pissed him off because, you know, he wanted to be first. I'm like, you didn't even speak the language when you started. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. he got it. He had an opportunity to come to the States for his internship and he boarded a boat. And that's where he met my mom in New York City, actually. They were, you know, that's where they did their internship. And so, you know, I had these really strong role models. Now, one part of my childhood was that it was kind of like, these are your expectations and you kind of have to follow the norm, right? Like, you know, when, when I was young, I was like, oh, I want to be an actress. And they're like, that would be a no. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because with my kids, my attitude is completely different now. My attitude is that you have one life and, and even over the last year and a half, like this has been, you know, such a different journey yeah. and, and more of a, a deep realization of, yeah. of what we feel is important. You have one life That's and right. you have to love what you do. That's right. You're not going to figure it out right away. I mean, very few people know from the beginning, this is what I want in my life. This is what I want to be. This is where I want to be. And that's okay. And I think that's a really important point is, and and I say that to, to my kids all the time is that, you know, you can't be hard on yourself all the time. Like you, it's, it's a process and everything you do along your journey is, you know, part of it, your failures, your successes, like that brings you to your, the point in time. So when I look at me now, mm. all of that stuff brought me to this point in time. And, <laughs> you know, I went to school for accounting. Uh, I have, I have a master's in accounting and I'm a CPA and, you know, I practiced for a year I did not love it. I love all the CPAs out there. I'll clarify that, but I, this, it was not the thing for me. And so, but I think as a child, it was kind of like, you know, Hey, you need to do this, this, or these, this, these are, these are kind of like the accepted professions, you know, that we see. I don't, I don't look at it that way. I just look at it that if you can positively impact the world in whatever you're doing, that's what you should be doing. You should, you know, not mm-hmm. focus on the job, but focus on how you're interacting with humanity and how you're bringing kindness and thoughtfulness to the people around you. So I do have a different attitude, but that is not something that I had 15 years ago. This is definitely just part of my evolution mm-hmm. of, and the big part is, you know, once I really sat down and wrote the book and said, this is where I want to be. You know, this is not where anybody else, I, you know, I'm not thinking about what anybody else wants anymore. My kids, absolutely. My husband, yes. But, you know, I went through all of these pieces in my life and this is it. This is what I love. I love talking to people. I love sharing my stories. And again, if I can impact one person, then it's all worth it. That's beautiful. And as you, you say in the book, uh, which is the Gandhi saying, you be the change that you want to see in the world. Also in your book, you use the phrase, uh, tut, tutkum tikkun olam, tikkun olam, tikkun olam, um, repairing the world, and you know it's really kind of how I look at, you know, really all aspects of my life, and you know, again, it goes back to you know being the change you want to see. It's not saying, oh, if you do this, you're going to change the entire world. And I think sometimes we look at those things and say, well, if I can't make that huge of a change, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to do it at all. Right. But I think it's a really important thing to understand that by doing little things, the little things you do every day really do impact the people around you, the conversations that you have. And you don't know what anybody else is going through ever, right? So right. when you start a conversation, you could be the one positive thing in in their day. And so I'm a big believer in that, you know, my husband and I had a conversation the other day. He's like, can the world be repaired? And I was like, 
Yes, it can. I was like, you know, I think that there are all, always pieces that we will struggle with. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's how that's how life works. And there's mm-hmm. always pieces of me that I'm going to struggle with, right? Right. And and that making that connection though, so that people see that they're not alone. People see that that you're trying. Um, my husband has coined the phrase. I pulled a Simone today, and it's a positive thing. <laughs> okay. But when he um, he's like, I was on a call, and I was like ready to lose my temper. And I thought, you know what? I don't know what this person is going through. Let me take a step back. You know, let me put it in a, you know, put a different light on, on the conversation. And then he would say like, you won't believe what happened. I just had this like 30 minute conversation with this person. They turned out to be like the nicest person in the world. I was ready to lose my temper, but then I pulled a Simone. And and so I was like, okay, that's pretty funny actually. So (laughs) that's um, pretty funny. I think I'm going to start using that catchphrase too, (laughs) because I, I catch myself, um, Often, especially if you're on someone, if you're talking to someone on a phone, there's, you know, it's not interpersonal at all. It's usually business related. And I know I've, and my wife has experienced me getting really aggravated with people on the phone, Mm -hmm. but they're just doing a job. They're, they're a person, they have a story. They're going through other things. They didn't know me as well. Um, Even when you go into a store, you don't know there, you just look at someone, okay, they're right now, their role to me is they're going to help me check out my groceries, but they're also a person. They're also a human being. They have a story. They have stuff going through. They have stuff on their mind. I should be caring and sensitive to that moment, not vent or throw all of my stuff at them um, emotionally. And we're living in a very stressed time, um, even before COVID. Um, just to be mindful of someone else, someone else's moment to experience life. It's very powerful, but yeah. I will, I think I'm going to start saying that to myself. I'm going to pull this alone. <laughs> but that would be amazing. But you know, you know what I say to my kids sometimes, and I think this is also important to remember, and I need to reminded of it as well. Going back to that, you never know what anyone else is going through. And sometimes when people are interacting in a negative way with you, it's not about you. It's about right. them. It's about what they're dealing with. So my daughter had experience, an experience at school where someone was being very mean to her. And um, I said, well, let's have a conversations with the, with the teacher. And she's like, don't do it. And I was like, no, you have to do it. You have to have an open conversation. And of course, turns out, you know, we found out that the girl's parents were getting divorced oh. and, you know, she was going through a really hard time. Yeah. And I said that, you know, you, sometimes you just have to take that step back and say, you know, it's not about me. It's about them. Can right. I help them with something? Mm-hmm. You know, with kids, it's a little bit more difficult. But, you know, I think that it's really important to take that that step back. And it's changed my life tremendously. You know, those frustrations are are gone because we're mostly gone. There's moments. Mm-hmm. I had a moment where I um, was waiting at the Starbucks drive through and I was waiting appropriately. So I had enough space so someone could pull around Mm -hmm, me if they needed to or Mm -hmm. back out of their parking space. Mm -hmm. And of course, as I'm waiting there with a gap between me and the person in front of me, Mm -hmm. someone cut in front of me and, you know, right into the drive-thru line. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I was a little angry. Yeah, I was with my daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest daughter. And um, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) you know, and and I was, she was like, mom, I think you might need to reread your book. (laughs) (laughs) And so Uh then we, um, you know, and I was like, okay, 
perspective. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And then we get up to pay. And of course, the person who had cut us off paid for our drinks. And so then my daughter said, I know, right? Mm -hmm. Those moments where you're like, Mm -hmm. and so then my daughter said, well, since they paid for ours, can we pay for the people behind us? And I said, absolutely. And then she said, I wonder how long it will last. I'm like, who knows? But you know what? It's a great idea. So again, perspective, look at things. Take a step back. Maybe that the person who was driving the car felt bad and think, oh, I can't believe I just did this. Yeah. She probably didn't realize that I was waiting yeah. in line. And, you know, yeah. like, again, we, these things where we make these assumptions or these judgment calls and we're like, mm-hmm. why do we do this? We should yeah. do this. Right. So, right. yeah. Good reminder yeah. from a little kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I'm reminded of so many little things or my own words coming back at me from my, from my kids. And I'm like, of course you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's our, our loved ones who, who pushes back onto our own, you know, when we step off of our own path and we go against or what we own, what we believe in like getting angry at the person who cutting in front of us. <laughs> I remind myself every day and it's not a mantra. It's just a reminder saying I, that I'm grateful, uh, respectful, not taking things for granted, especially in this past, we're still going through COVID. It's still a pandemic, but just being thankful for what I do have right. and, and grateful for what I do have. Right. And many other people don't. And I have to uh, remind myself that no matter what issues I may have, I have to put into perspective mm-hmm. that. I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know what, your issues are real issues. So it's okay to get upset about them. Yeah. It's okay to get frustrated, right? Like, I think that's important yeah. as well, but I do the same thing. It's a, it's the perspective of yeah. how fortunate am I? Like yeah. when all the kids came home from school, mm-hmm. um, we're, you know, we were down to three, we were 50% empty nesters. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> the three came back because uh-huh. the school shut down. And yeah. so, you know, we're back to all six kids in the house and People are like, oh my gosh. I'm like, oh yeah, the laundry's going to double. Everything's doubling right now. But I have moments with my kids that I would have never had, mm-hmm. right? I mean, my oldest son is 24 years old. And so what's the chance mm-hmm. he was going to come back, right? So, yeah. you know, those things, like that was a gift for me. And I was really thankful that that I got to have these crazy discussions at the dinner mm-hmm. table that we would have missed mm-hmm. if this wasn't the situation. Um, so yes, there's a lot of suffering, but I do... Every day I think about what I'm thankful for. And there is always something that I'm thankful for. Yeah, that's beautiful. And something else that you say that's to be respectful of your own emotions and it's okay to feel this way. And it's also okay. And you and you bring it up in your book. And I mm-hmm. say this as well, no matter who you are, it's okay to cry. Mm-hmm. It's okay to, to feel the feelings. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people, I'm not going to name any names, but I, people that I know, try to toughen it out and try to push those feelings down either it's because they feel stronger doing so or is the way they were um, taught when they were growing up to to not cry to be tougher than that you know uh, fighters don't cry whatever it may be but crying is such a great release Mm -hmm. and i think that sometimes blocking preventing yourself from feeling pushes down other things that would actually help you if they came out. Yeah. And I I also think, I mean, I think that when you have an emotion, you need to feel it. Like it is in that moment, it's an important thing because I think, you know, like what you're saying, if you stuff it down, 
then you don't get through it. You don't, and I'm not saying you're going to move past things because it is, it's part of your whole story, right? There are failures that you have. There are, you know, things that happen in your life that are really hard to kind of move past. But I think that if you kind of live in that moment, have those emotions, and then use that as a tool to learn and then move forward, then I think that really, that helps you move forward. But if you ignore it and say, oh, that was no big deal, mm-hmm. um, it's always still in the back of your mind. Yeah. You know, was it a big deal? Was it not a big deal? And you don't get over it. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's really important to to kind of deal with your emotions, let it all out, and then figure out how you're going to move forward. And I think on the flip side of that, and it's something my my wife, Carrie, says it all the time to our children, is to not, and you and when you said this, I said, I had texted my wife, said, you would not believe, you have to read this book. This, <laughs> everything I'm reading this book is just like, it's everything I think about, the wording that you use in your book. And when you wrote in your book to not make mountains out of molehills, I was like, honey, you've got to read this book. <laughs> this is what we say all the time. And I tell myself, we tell our children to not make mountains out of molehills. How would you describe your own when you think of that, not making mountains out of molehills? So I'll give one example. Okay. You know, so I will send out an email to someone, um, maybe, you know, pitching to be on their podcast or wanting to have a discussion or something. And I don't hear back and I don't hear back and I don't hear back. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. and in my mind, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? They don't, they don't like me. They don't Mm -hmm. like my messaging. They don't like this and they don't like that. They're actually not even thinking about me. They maybe not haven't even read the email and I'm making it into this huge to do. Right. And you know, and finally, like I'll get an email back. Hey, I just read your email. Um, yeah, I'd love to connect. And, you know, I'm building this up in my mind. Like yeah. it's like a huge thing. And I'm right. like, and that's a reminder that the kids say to me too. They're not even thinking about you, mom. Like, why are you getting upset? You know? Right. And, yeah. and it's true. Like, I think mm-hmm. we do, we create these mountains out of things that could just be something that we could work through and move on and, and, and not perseverate on it and, you know, make it into something that, much bigger than it really is. Well, that's also like a human thing of going on the negative side of it, being and then being paranoid mm-hmm. and start thinking, then start going our down our own extrapolated mental uh, rabbit hole of, oh, I shouldn't have done this. Or what about this? And, uh, you know, if it's a job, oh, I'm going to be fired because I said this or I did this or, you know, it's a, it's a lot of that. And that's a, that's a mm-hmm. interesting human aspect of why do we always go to the mountain side or or the negative side of situation when it's completely untrue or it's biased or we're judging situation or we don't know the other side of the story we go to the negative side and not think oh they just maybe they're busy they haven't looked at the email or what i'm thinking is completely incorrect yeah i remember taking uh, when i was going through yoga school and I forgot the name, it was a Sanskrit term of seeing something, it could just be, let's say it's a mug, but back here in the shadow, like, oh my God, it's a mouse, it's a mouse, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? But why do our minds do that? And we, you know, we immediately go to the, to the fear side or to the negative side. Yeah. So for me, I think that for a long time, because I did, you know, part of my journey was that I struggled to figure out where I wanted to be and not 
again, not where everybody else wanted to be, where I wanted to be. And I think to get to that point, I really had to believe in myself. And I think a lot of times when we approach things, you know, we don't think we know enough. We don't think we're good enough. We don't. And so we start putting all these doubts. And so, you know, yes, like, so now when I send an email, I'm like, it's out there. Okay. When they respond, they respond. If they don't, they don't. And if I get a rejection, I say, thank you so much for your time, you know, because not everybody has to like me, like that's not the point, you know, and not, I'm not a fit for everybody. And, you know, that's a reminder of that, like, right. it's okay. Like, this is part of who we are. Rejections are okay. Failures are okay. Mistakes are okay. But we still can have that confidence. We don't, again, we don't have to fit, check every box, right. you know, we, we just need to believe in ourselves. Yeah, that's beautiful. Can you share the story of adopting Millie? Yeah. So <laughs> Millie, we call her our grand finale uh, because she really does complete us as mm -hmm. a family. And every time I say that, she's like, seriously, mom? <laughs> I'm like, yes, seriously. <laughs> um, she yeah. has like uh, so much spunk now. And when I look back at, mm -hmm. you know, the when we met her, so we had, when we put in and, and going back to the, okay, four, five, and six. So when we adopted Ari, um, when we were at the orphanage, before we even left, we knew we were going to come back again. Mm -hmm. And, right. and it, that wasn't the plan. Mm -hmm. The plan wasn't, Oh, six kids. Um, but <laughs> when we saw the kids that were there yeah. and, you know, you would sit down on the ground and they would crawl on your lap and oh, wow. they truly just wanted someone to love them. Oh, yeah. And our girls were with us. And so they were in the baby toddler room. We were like, let's go explore the city. And they're like, we're going to stay here. We want to hold the babies. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's literally what they did for wow. the majority of the trip. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we were going to come back again. We already had it in our mind. And so we went through the same thing, a boy between four and 10. Um, surprise, Millie, two and a half years old. And, you know, she, when we received her uh, referral photo, mm -hmm. um, saddest eyes I have ever seen. Oh. She, had a sign around her neck with her mm -hmm. um, name on it. And it, it was a hard, it was a hard picture to see. I'm sure. Jacob and I traveled and it was a much longer process with Millie. Things had changed over time um, in terms of how the process worked in Ethiopia. And so Jacob and I traveled to bring her home and oh, it took a long time for her to let us get near her. She was totally scared of us and, and rightfully so, you know, and I, I thought, Again, the, the, the idea you have in your mind of how this is going to work. And I'm like, I can't even feed her. Wow. Like, she won't let me get near her. How, mm. how are we going to be able to bring her home? Right. And, you know, every day we'd sit out there and try mm. to play ball or, you know, sit by the crib. There was a measles outbreak at the orphanage. So the kids had to stay within their, their rooms mm. wow. um, for, for the beginning wow. period of time. Okay. And so, you know, really trying to... <sighs> build that trust. And, you know, you have a short period of time, we're there a week, and then, you know, we've got to get back on a plane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we did it. Yeah. She was, you know, she was, she was sick. She had been through a lot. She had quashia core. So the protein deficiency where her, mm -hmm. she had the distended abdomen, oh. um, she couldn't sit up and she could barely walk. And I think part mm -hmm. of the not being able to walk was because she was kept in a crib so much because oh. of the measles outbreak, they right. couldn't really, mm -hmm. you know, get out and run around. Um, oh. But, you know, again, ringworm all over Ugh. her scalp. She had giardia. Mm. She was missing a toenail, a fingernail. She mm. had a fire burn on her belly. This oh, kid wow. at two and a half has mm -hmm. been through, you know, mm -hmm. so much. And yeah. so, you know, we, we 
built up enough trust with her that we could, you know, make it home. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The flight wasn't as exciting as uh, Noah's, but definitely she decided at one point to just start screaming and there was nothing I could do. And, (laughs) you know, I was kind of like, I'm again, I am doing my best and that's all I can do at this point. Like I am, you know, I can't figure it out yet. I'll figure it out eventually. But she, you know, she's such a, she's 13 now. She's also such a cool kid. She is full of attitude, which is exactly (laughs) how I like her because, you know, Mm -hmm. when I look back at, the day we met her with those, you know, the super sad eyes mm-hmm. to her eyes just sparkle. Oh, like she wow. just really lights up a room. And oh, that's beautiful. You know, so the things where she's like, can I get a manicure? I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, you know, so she, but she, you know, she, it, t- it took a long time when we came home. Um, she wouldn't go near my husband for like three months. Oh, wow. Um, he would try to pick her up. She would scratch his face. So oh. we know that, you know, whatever there probably was some incident that caused her to be more scared of, of men. Right. Um, no matter what I was doing, I had her in a pack on my back. If I was cooking dinner, like she wanted to be attached right. to me all of the time. Wow. Yeah. Um, but she is, she's an amazing, she's an amazing, amazing kid. That's so beautiful. Do any of your adopted children say to you in so many words, thank you, or I'm so grateful, or have they been very mindful of their whole process? So, um, no. And I think if they did, I would have a really big problem with it because, um, it's not a thank you moment for me. So I, Mm -hmm. it's interesting though, that, um, that you brought that up because so when, when I originally said I was going to write this book, Millie said to me, can you leave me out of it? Oh, and I said, "Oh yes, let me write about my five fa- favorite children and, and not talk about you." <laughs> right, and I was like, "Not really an option." She's like, "Well, I don't think I'm going to like it." Oh. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you know that's okay. Um, you're 13. That's okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so when it was done, I had a couple of copies that came that we had sitting on the counter in the house, and I saw her walk up to the counter and put one under her sweatshirt, and I was like, "Rob, yeah. look what's happening!" <laughs> and um, so she uh, she went upstairs. Mm-hmm. And she called me about an hour later. She FaceTimed me, tears streaming down her face wow. saying, I didn't know that story about Noah just being a number. I didn't know that story about Ari's um, birth sibling wanting to come home with us. I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. She's like, I thought I was going to hate it, yeah. um, but I absolutely love it. And so, you know, I said, have you read about yourself yet? She's like, no, I'm not there yet. And I said, well, maybe put it down for the night. And she said, no, I really want to finish the whole thing tonight. Uh-huh. So after she read the stories about herself, she said, you know, I, it was a little weird, but like, it's good to read this because there's things that I, I didn't know. And I said, well, how does it make you feel? And she said, thankful, I guess. And I said, nope, (laughs) take that one back. Let's start again. I said, how does it make you feel? And she said, well, it makes me feel like I should Mm -hmm. do something special for someone else. That's amazing. So, you know, that was a great answer, but we never want our kids to be thankful again, because I trust me, what we want them to be thankful about a lot of things, but not about us adopting them, not about them being part of our family because they're part of our family. You know, like there's like, that isn't like a, again, they started at a place of loss. And so, you know, we don't want them to ever look at, you know, being a birth child versus a child yeah. who was adopted differently. Like they are our children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can tell you that the birth kids are not feeling thankful. So no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they are actually, they think we're pretty cool. So, 
you know, but that was really, and, and when, when she FaceTimed me and she was crying, I was like, I don't need any other review. That is the only thing. It's the only thing I needed. So that's it. Yeah. That's beautiful. You brought up, you mentioned, and you mentioned your book that, um, when your children would cry, especially Noah and a little bit of Millie on the plane and I fly a lot as well. And yes, babies do cry, for, you know, whatever they need to, whatever they're going through, if it hurts their ears. And people just quickly want to judge the parent. They want to judge the child. Can your baby stop crying? You know, they're stuck on a plane for mm-hmm. however long. But again, they don't think about what's the child going through, what's the parent going through. And some parents bring with them on a plane. I want to see what you feel about this. A little apology baskets. If my child cries, you'll hear our headphones. I don't like that because you're already apologizing for your child mm-hmm. and their behavior and, and you're letting them judge you immediately. How do you feel about that? You know what? I actually like it. And, and not, not because you're apologizing for your child, but because you're breaking the mood already, right? Like you're saying, hey, if this happens, like, don't be mad at my child. And the notes that I've seen have been like, hey, this is my first flight. Can you, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, can you, can you give me some slack? Um, mm-hmm. Because instantly people go to the negative, right? So right. I, I don't, I don't mind it at all. Like, I really think oh, that it's kind okay. of cute. And now obviously that I have so many kids and we've, we take them everywhere. Um, even when they were babies, we took them everywhere. You know, I was on a flight from, I actually, I travel a lot as well. And I was a flight on a flight from India and there was a couple who had adopted two children and they were sitting up in business. I was not sitting in business. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the children was having a tantrum the entire time. And, you know, I had friends that were sitting up in business and they were very frustrated. And I actually walked up to the woman because I knew that she had adopted these children and I had a conversation with her and I said, I know how hard this is, but you can't let what's happening around you, you know, make you feel defeated by the situation. And Mm -hmm. then she said to me that, you know, one of, um, one of her kids actually is, um, deaf and nonverbal. So this Uh was the child who was, so again, did anybody ask her if she needed help? Did anybody ask her like, you know, no, nobody did. And and then I had that conversation with her and I said to my friends, hello, like take a step back, you Mm -hmm. know, like, do you understand how hard this is Mm -hmm. for the child and for the mom? Like, this is not, this is a really tough situation. So I think, you know, so going back to the original question of like, you know, no, I don't think like, I don't think of it as like setting your kid up to fail, assuming that they're already going to start crying. But I do think it breaks the ice with the people, you know, around you. Okay. You're not going to mm-hmm. get the whole plane a lollipop, but you know, like <laughs> something like, you know, um, and it makes, if, if it makes that person feel better, if it makes them feel, cause I mean, you see when moms are on a flight and the baby starts crying, it's like anxiety city, right? right? Because not because the baby's crying, but because the people around them are frustrated. Yeah. It's not about the baby. It's about how you're being looked at. Right. You speak about, oh, um, there's so many things. <laughs> there's so many things in your book that are like, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. <laughs> Life isn't always fair. Even in the moment of being on a plane, and I'm sure someone on a plane, like, I just want to enjoy my flight. This is not fair. How come to have a baby screaming on the plane? We always talk about uh, with our kids that life isn't always fair. You're not going to get exactly this. You're not going to get exactly what that person's getting. It goes back to the fact of uh, expectations. I expected this to be this way. That's completely impossible. 
again, life never goes the way you think it's going to go. So, and it, it isn't always fair, but gosh, be thankful for all of the, the good things that you have and, and learn from anything that you think isn't fair, you know, like take that moment and say, okay, how do I make it better for the future versus saying, well, that's not fair. I, you know, I'm not going to do anything now because that guy got the job and I didn't, and I deserved it. Okay. That doesn't work that way either. Right. So, um, I think that learning from, from these things instead of just, it's, it's not, it's so personal, right? Like you, you're in a situation where, you know, someone else got the job or someone else, you know, won the, the grand prize. Okay. Well, yeah. So that's how it works. I mean, move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, um, look at this. This is like, I'm, I'm like, I was doing a book report on your book. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. Well, like it makes you. me so happy. <laughs> Trust me. Okay. So I, I'm not, we're not going to finish this conversation without talking about your climb on Mount Kilimanjaro, but we'll get there. We will get there. In your book, you talk about, now, you're not ultra-religious, you're Jewish, and you talk about the Jewish values. And if someone's not, if someone's not Jewish, or someone's atheist or mm-hmm. agnostic, it doesn't matter. It's the value. Mm-hmm. If you take away the Hebrew, it's the values that, that are beautiful to consider. Mm-hmm. And there are seven values, kavad, which is respect. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pronounce these wrong. Shalom. That's great. Don't worry about <laughs> okay, it. Just thank keep you. going. It's like I'm in Hebrew school. Um, shalom, bayit, which mm-hmm. is peace in the home. And these, with every value that you're talking about, I would sit back and I would say, uh-huh, remember this, hold on to this. And if you're not religious or if you don't believe in God, but being in God's image, how, how would you describe that in being in God's image if someone doesn't believe in God. Yeah. So take, take a step back from the God piece and say, you know, a human image, like being respectful, being kind, all of these things that we kind of, you know, should be every day, right? We should take a step back and say, like, if you are religious, you look at, you know, the image of God and think, you know, how do we respect what I, what I think I see every day and, and what has come in front of me. And I think if you're not religious, you say that, you know, how can I be the best person I can be? Mm-hmm. So all of these things that mix together in terms of making a good good human. I mean, for me, the ultimate goal of um, my life, I'm not looking at a finish line. I never look at it that way. I look at the pieces of the journey is to raise good humans, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. and I would imagine in the image of God, it would be to be the best person you can be. So mm-hmm. take away the God person, be the best person you can be. Right. Be kind, be thoughtful, mm-hmm. be caring, you know, think about other people. So- to me, that's how I look at it. That's beautiful. Even if you're on your own journey and part of your journey is, okay, I need to be a parent. I need to be a good partner. I need to um, do this job. You could easily put on your own blinders and just follow along and everything else is as secondary or doesn't even matter. But once you take your blinders off, everything does matter. Everything is part of the journey and, and being respectful with who and what's around you. I think that that's very important. Yeah. I mean, it's our day, again, yeah. our daily interactions, you know, you could have your blinder on and say, I've yeah. got to get to work right now. I don't, you know, and your focus is just on the drive versus as you're driving, yeah. seeing, you know, Hey, you know, this person needs, you know, I'm going to let them in or I'm going to, you know, any of these little things where, you know, we don't, we don't see it as important and it could be so important in someone else's day. And that goes into the second one of the communal responsibility, not just giving to a charity or something, but 
taking care of of your community around you and those around you. And 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 that ties back into the whole tikkun olam piece that we that we were talking about before in terms of healing the world. Yes, that is a Jewish term, but mm. it's not just healing the Jewish world, it's healing the world. So, you know, it's taking all pieces of humanity together yeah. and so when we talk about these values, you're right. It's yes, I call them Jewish values. They're values for humans. So whatever religion you are, you can you can see them through your own eyes. And this is just being part of a human being. I think we even lose sight of ourselves. And I, I don't want to speak for other people, but I lose sight of myself. Mm -hmm. Guarding one's use of language or being respectful to language and how we speak to others. Your words matter. Words matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love that neighbor and yourself. I mean, that's everyone. Loving is respecting. Mm -hmm. If you bump into someone on the street, you say, excuse me. Yeah. You say hello in the elevator. Like, that's the funniest thing to me. You know, like, how often do you think someone at the, in the checkout line actually asks the teller or the person that's bagging their groceries, how's your day going? Probably not that often, right? right? And, and we could use a bit mm -hmm. more of that, especially, especially now. I know a lot of people aren't going to grocery stores still, but still, you know, even mm -hmm. the conversation when you're calling someone for customer service and they say, how can I help you? I always say, well, how's your day going? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you started off on like a, and sometimes I'll get like a full out story oh, of wow. like, oh my gosh, I just had the worst morning. Sometimes I'll just get that. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. How's yours? You know, like yeah. whatever it is, it's, it's a moment of connection. Right. And, you know, I know people will say, oh, I'm so busy. You take the time for you things that are important in your life. And for me, these things are important. It's just a nice thing to do. Yeah. Um, my husband actually said too, I had worked in medical sales for a period of time and I was at the hospital one day and I was walking with him through the OR and people were like, Hey, Simone, Hey, Simone, uh -huh. three people in a row. Hey, Simone. And he's uh -huh. like, how do you know these people? And he's like, I've worked here for 20 years. And I wow. was like, cause I actually have a conversation with them. I learn about their lives. Right. I, you know me, I love talking to people. And then yeah. the, the funniest part for him was that they're like, oh, there's Simone's husband. <laughs> and he was like, oh my gosh, you've invaded my last space. <laughs> so, yeah. cause it used to be your Rob's wife. Right. And now it's like, oh, or you're Simone's husband. And he was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny story. So there's a story that you talk about and I highlighted and I started the starfish story. Could you talk about that? Could you share with us? Yeah. So it's obviously it's not my story. It's a story that is out there in the world, but I think it's a, it's a good story um, kind of to remind us of, you know, the impact that you can make. And so the story goes that, you know, there's an old man who um, does his writing on the beach and every day he gets up and this one morning he sees a little boy in the distance um, slowly walking, throwing things into the ocean. And as he gets closer, he realizes what the boy is doing is he's, you know, throwing starfish that had been stuck in the sand, you know, after high tide or whatever. And there's thousands of them as far as the eye can see. And the old man said, you know, there's no way you can save them all. It's not going to make a difference. And the little boy picks one up and throws it in the water. And he said, well, it made a difference to that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, a really important um, story about perspective mm -hmm. and the impact that you can make and how just because this is the way we see things doesn't mean that other people can't see things in a different way and to really learn from what other people do as well. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I think it's a very powerful story. Yeah. A very simple, but very powerful yeah. story. It's also the, um, you know, if it's not broken, mm. don't fix it kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, we always talk about that there's three sides to every story. Mm-hmm. You know, you do have to kind of look and say, this is how I saw it, but wow, that's such a great, great way of looking at it. What can I learn from that? And, um, and parenting is such a yes. great example because yes. there's so many parts, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when my kids were little, you were supposed to put them on their back right. and then there was a Same time here. period when they were supposed to be put on their side. Mm-hmm. And when I was little, I was supposed to be put on my belly. Like, right. okay. You know, and you know, for me, what has worked is what has worked for me. Right. So like I try different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there isn't a manual, right? There isn't something that says you have to do things this way. And if you can learn something that someone else is doing that might work for you, learn it, be open to it. Yeah. I wrote a book for dads called mm-hmm. 101 New Dad Tips. And these are not tips. I say these are not tips. These are ideas. These are suggestions. Um, like you said, with when we had our first girl, the slogan for sleeping was back to mm-hmm. sleep. And then she got flathead, but it's it grew out. But we're trying to follow a guideline, which may not have worked. So for our second girl, we loosened oh. the rules. You know what you talk about in your book. Yes. You loosen yes. the rules as you go with every child. You're not as strict. You don't watch them as much. You figure out what works for right. you. And, yeah. you know, again, it's like not a judgment thing. Like, I don't think as parents, as parents, as humans, we should support each other. And if something works for you, let me learn about it so I can I can try it. And I'm not going to judge you of, you know, what you're trying just because it's not what, you know, some parenting expert has told you to do. You know, I just, I think that, you know, we, we have to see that there are other perspectives. Even doctors, they can have all the degrees in the world, but we all have our own ways of being. We're all humans and they can be wrong. A lot of people think that, and, I, and I'm not, this is nothing against Rob at all. I don't know Rob, but <laughs> yeah, um, well, Rob's a great guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that the doctor could be going off old information or telling you all that they know. They can be the old man on the beach. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the starfish. Well, I want to worry about the starfish. Yeah. And they could say, well, you don't need to do that. Well, this is me. So a lot of people put so much weight and value in someone else's word and opinion uh, if they have a degree or not without looking to their own life and situation and journey and experience and say, well, what works, what works for me? Because they could sometimes someone, maybe I'm guilty of this, could listen to someone's idea and they'd be put on the wrong path and they have to redirect themselves back to their own natural path, maybe even too late. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a really good point in, in terms of how, how we see ourselves in general, going back to, you know, what we think about. So for me, like I always talk about that, you know, I'm an ordinary girl who's had these extraordinary moments, right? And this is what has shaped my journey. And I'm not the celebrity on stage, right? I'm not. So does that make me um, less credible? Does that, you know, like those kinds of things, I'm not comparing like a person that isn't a physician to a physician that that's a whole different story. But I'm just saying that, you know, I think that sometimes we, we look at things um, and, you know, we don't give enough value to ourselves and our decision-making um, because we're like, well, we don't have that degree or we don't have this. And I don't think that's really should be part of the conversation. Like what can we bring, you know, to help someone else? I think that's what's part of the conversation. That's a good point that we put so much value. If someone is a quote unquote ordinary person and this other person here is a quote unquote celebrity, who are we going to listen to first? 
how are you going to value their words? Or this person's a doctor. Okay, so now between these three, they each can be right. Yeah. Or they can be wrong. But who are we going to listen to first? You know, we go onto social media mm-hmm. and we read, now you must do this and this and this. Yeah. And a celebrity is saying, oh, well, if they said this, then they're living the good life. Maybe I should follow them. It's really thwarted thinking. Yeah. Again, I think we have to, you know, and this goes back to like the whole, you know, really, really my whole message of probably my life now is that we, you know, again, we got, we have to stop comparing ourselves to other people. Compare, compare yourself to yourself. Where were you yesterday? Where are you today? Okay. And then really, you know, my big thing is that, you know, we don't, we don't need to change, you know, who we are. We need to change the way we see ourselves because we all have this, we all have value. We all bring different things to the table. We, we just have to believe in ourselves. And in believing yourself, that's a great transition to climbing Kilimanjaro. You believed and you kept pushing yourself and you believed in yourself to climb up the summit. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. It's exactly, you climbed the mountain. What made you want to, I know it's for a foundation, it was for a live strong, but someone looks at the mountain and say, oh no, no, that's dangerous. I don't have it in me. I'd rather do something else. I'll give some money to the foundation. Right. But you went, have you ever gone mountain climbing before? Uh, that would be a no. Because you went up the biggest one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I joke that I've gone camping a few times. Oh. Uh, no, I was I was never a climber. But I, again, I think that that goes back to the point of that. If you believe in something, right. if, if this is something that you want, right. a lot of people have said to me, oh, I could never climb Kilimanjaro. Well, do you want to? No. I said, okay, so that's the conversation. Mm-hmm. You don't want to. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that you can't do it. So my husband's friend had climbed it the year before with the same organization. And he asked my husband if he was interested and basic answer, no, mm-hmm. call Simone. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I would love to do it. And it wasn't originally a bucket list item. It was a bucket list item once I was like, I'm in um, because I never thought about it before. Like, really, it wasn't like, you know, hey, what are the things I want to do? I think about things differently now. But hey, one of the things I want to do is I want to climb a mountain. <laughs> and I have never climbed mountain before. But once I had that opportunity, I was like, yes, uh-huh. this is very cool. This is something that completely will challenge me mentally and physically. And probably the way I really kind of saw it as like, what a great example for my kids that, Hey, if there's something that you want to do, put the work into Mm -hmm. it and don't give up. Don't look back, just keep moving forward. And if you fail, that's okay too. I mean, that's like the part of it is that the challenge in front of you. And, uh, so it was really an amazing experience. And, you know, I went with complete strangers, um, had an amazing tent mate, who um, is a breast cancer survivor. Mm. And so, you know, I hadn't met her before we got there and then we shared a hotel room for two nights and then, you know, hiking and then we were tent mates and really powerful to not only climb with people that I didn't know. I mean, again, I love learning people's stories. So, you know, that was like a bonus. Yeah. But having that experience with people who were, who are cancer survivors who are, were climbing in honor of someone who had passed or was in treatment or was a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things just made it like to the next level mm-hmm. beyond just, hey, I'm going to climb a mountain. And I think that was really powerful for me. And also 
a big piece that, you know, when we talk about leadership. So I was part of Young Leadership Cabinet for the Jewish Federations, and I was their co-chair from 2018 to 2019. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about myself and leadership in that role. But leadership, you know, on a mountain, you know, how you interact, because I think leadership is part of our everyday lives, how we interact with our family, how we interact with our friends. Um, And leadership climbing a mountain, like, you can't leave, right? You're you're there. It's not like you can go back to your bedroom or, you know, your your office. You're, you know, you're working with this team of people figuring out how you get to the next place. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about myself. I'm sure. Um and again, another, you know, for me truly an amazing experience and life-changing in many ways, really appreciating things more and realizing what I was capable of that. No, I'm not a climber, but you know what? I wanted to do this and I accomplished it. And I think it's a good kind of lesson for everyone Mm. that don't, you know, don't just say you can't do it. Like if you want to do it, try it. Yeah. Try it. That's great. When you were on the mountain, how often were you doubting your choice to do it? Never, to be honest. That's awesome. Yeah. I am, again, my mindset from the beginning was this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, were there tough moments? Absolutely. But those tough moments lead to like even greater experiences, right? Right. So, no, there wasn't a moment. And again, when you're surrounded by such a great group of people that, you know, I always think back to, I used to, I did triathlons for a little bit, then I had knee surgery. And so that's, that's a whole nother story. But when you're racing and you hear the people cheering, right. And you like, and you think that you can't take another step, you can't go any farther. And then you hear the people cheering and all of a sudden you have this energy back. And that's kind of how I felt like the whole time was Mm -hmm. because I knew that my family was cheering for me. I had one really cool moment where, um, when we got to the, the first summit, yeah, that I took out my phone to take a picture of the sunrise and I had cell service crazy, but true. And I was able to call home Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, hear my family cheering for me, which, you know, like that was kind of like, okay, this is like such a cool moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I was the only one with cell service. So whoever wanted to use my phone could call home as well. Um, So that was fun. (laughs) And you talk about that in the book that you had the cell service and you wanted to share the experience, but you didn't take a picture. No, man. No. (laughs) I missed the moment, but luckily lots of other people took pictures. So, Um, but you know, I think that it's really, mm-hmm. it was life-changing. Again, mm-hmm. getting to the summit and really kind of looking back and looking back of all these things that I've done in my life. And even now, okay, sitting here with you today, you know, I wouldn't be at this mo- in this moment of in time, mm-hmm. you know, if all of these different things didn't happen, right? So all these things line up to kind of bring you to this moment in time, your successes, your failures, your triumphs, your tragedies, you know, mm-hmm. they all kind of lead you on this, on this path. And so, you know, that's how I felt when I got to the summit, I was looking back and thinking, okay, all of these things that I've done in my life, mm-hmm. um, did I ever think I would be at this moment in time? No, but I shouldn't look at it like that. Like from now on, it's kind of like when I get to a moment in time saying, how cool is it that I am at this moment in time? Do you compare everything you do now to climbing Kilimanjaro. Oh, this is stressful, but it's nothing like climbing Kilimanjaro. No, my friends do that though. Oh. Um, and they'll like, they'll say for my husband too, oh, well, it's not brain surgery because he's a neurosurgeon, but you know, <laughs> um, no, I don't because you know, every situation is different and mm-hmm. you're allowed to feel your emotions in the moment. Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't really do that, but you know, it is a reminder for me of, you know, that you can do things that maybe other people thought 
you would wouldn't be able to accomplish. You know, who knows right. what any of, you know, who who knows what anybody was really thinking when I said this is what I'm doing. Same as when I said I'm writing a book. Um, yeah. You know, but a big lesson in in believing in yourself, and that's the most important thing to be able to move forward on your journey, to be able to, you know, however you define success. If you don't believe in yourself, it's very hard to accomplish any of these things. So, really saying like. I have value. I matter. The the decisions I make every day affect the people around me in a positive way. Let me, let me, let me see how I can, you know, do better, do better, do better things for the world. And so when I talk about the whole piece of that, you know, you don't need to change it. We don't need to change who we are. We need to change the way we see ourselves. Mm-hmm, right. I'm not talking about being complacent, but I'm, I'm talking about getting to a point where you believe in yourself. You realize that you have value and that opens up all kinds of opportunities for you because you're willing to take more risk. You're willing to put yourself out there and you're not seeing your failures at like the end point. You're seeing it as a bump in the road Mm -hmm. instead of the boulder in front of you. No, that's great. That's so perfect. How, what would you say to someone who is stuck, who has so many options and there are pros and cons to every option, but they're stuck. So I think also going back to, first of all, what do you want? Where do you see yourself? I'm big on the visualization piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also big on the, you know, yes, I talk to myself again. Another thing that my kids make fun. They're like, are you talking to yourself? I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) Um, You know, looking at, can you see yourself in this situation? Is this, and, and if you can see yourself there, is that where you want to be? Again, going back to that. Yes, we have responsibilities that we have to take care of, but is this actually what you want to do? Do you feel like this is this is going to make a difference for you? Do you feel like this is going to make a difference, a positive difference for the people around you? Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of how I look at all of my um, big decisions these days of, can I see myself doing this? Can I see myself on that big stage in front of people? Yes, I can see myself there. Um you know, and I, again, same kind of thing where I have friends say, oh my gosh, you say you love public speaking. You know, I'm like, yes, I I do. And they're like, how can you like being in front of people? <laughs> and if you can see yourself in a, in this situation, you have these choices in front of you, which choice makes the most sense for yourself and say, can I see myself doing this? You know, and it's not about, you know, obviously we have to look at financial stuff, but for me too, it's about, you know, if I'm going to be happy doing something that's going to pay me less, I'd rather be happy because the rest of it, I feel like will come over time. Um, A lot of times I think we make a decision for a job based on, well, this will be my salary. I don't love the idea of taking this job, but I'm going to do it because it pays me more money. Think about your day to day. Are you going to be happy? Is that how you're going to be happy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, that's what works for me. Again, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, (laughs) not a therapist. I'm I'm me. I'm me. Of course. (laughs) And thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. Those are just great words of advice. And you brought up a great point about money. Money always plays into uh, into it in some way, usually a big variable in decision-making. In your book, you brought up the topic of money. And let's bring it back to parenting just for a moment. I just wanted to reflect on, on this topic. One of the biggest and most important jobs that doesn't get paid and my wife is one of them is being a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home parent or solo parent and the value of a mother 
or stay-at-home mother is not appreciated uh, or, or, or is not compensated. And you really spoke about that. And I think it should be talked about more often. It's an American issue. It's a country issue. It's a worldwide issue. The, the strength of a, of a mother and stay-at-home mom, the love and the connection between the child and the mom and everything that the, the right now, I'm not home. I work in New York. My wife is home in Florida with our girls. They go to daycare, but most of the week is my wife and the kids. And it's a job. It's an unpaid job. What can you share about that? Yeah, and I'm I'm so glad you brought this up because it's it's one of those things when I, you know, with the things that I struggled with when I when I was younger, when I was, you know, a new mom, when I was a couple kids in, um, you know. I think that we, society makes us feel like we have to justify that we're staying home with our kids. Or, you know, I know that um, some people say, well, I took time off for my career uh, to be a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, kind of sounding like they have to justify why they're not working. And I think that's, that is totally the wrong way for us to look at things. Like, I think it's so important. The most important thing that, you know, I can do in my life is to bring amazing humans into this world that are going to care for other people, again, respect other people, care for the planet, all of these things. And I do think that we have this, this pressure on us that, you know, you have to, you have to find balance. You know, I, I say that I, I'm constantly searching for balance in my happily unbalanced life. Mm -hmm. I, you know, again, like there's so many things that can go with that statement, but like, I think that we, we shouldn't have to justify staying home with our kids. It is right. really, you know, such an important piece. And, you know, and there's some people that can't do that. Like they, they are, you know, working and raising kids and, but to have to justify what you're doing, like we're all here to make the world better. Right. And to, right. to lift each other up and to respect, you know, moms, like, mm -hmm. you know, when I think of the 16 million loads of laundry I've done in my life, <laughs> a right. laundromat, I'd be like out of money, you know? Um, uh -huh. So these and the I have a um I think one of the things I said in the book I had a friend who um said when times were really tough raising her kids and she she kind of felt like um okay what am I you know okay I'm doing another load of laundry I'm, I'm cooking the same breakfast again all of these things and she's like um you know I would take a step back and say you know I'm tending my garden oh. and you know, I think that is such a great way to look at it yeah. is that we are yeah, doing all these things mm -hmm. for our kids so that they grow into amazing, amazing humans. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we have to be, we have to, as, you know, as parents, as moms, um, and I'm going to say parents, because I think it applies to dads too. We have to, we have to lift each other up. We can't, you know, constantly be, you know, there shouldn't ever be a thing. Well, oh, I'm just, I, I used to do this. I'm just a stay at home mom. I'm just a wife. You know, I'm instead of I'm a stay at home mom, like that's part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't have to justify it to anyone. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I agree with the whole saying just in front of what you are, who you mm -hmm. are, or, or what you do. I feel that just saying I'm just this, I'm just that mm -hmm. kind of um, limits or demeans. Um, what it is that you are, who you are, what you're doing, instead of taking ownership, you are that, I am this. Yeah. And again, thank you for writing this book. The title, I had judged the book by its cover on this one. Because <laughs> thank you. follow your path, discover your own journey, the extraordinary, unordinary you. 
that just hit everything about what I believe in and the concept of my podcast, what's normal. And I want to ask you, Simone, I always ask this of my guest, what does normal mean to you? So I think normal means everything. I don't think there is a normal. I think that we're all, you know, normal means extraordinary. Normal means unordinary because we're all different in so many ways. So, you know, it, it, it's funny, it's, it goes back to the, you know, the ordinary girl, the normal girl, right? The, so, which, so to me, that means unordinary and extraordinary. That's beautiful. That's perfect. Simone Canego, thank you so much for first writing this book and also sharing what you shared on my podcast. This was amazing. And I, I think that for anyone listening, that it really is so important to have this human connection, especially right now, to be able to share our mm -hmm. stories and to understand that everybody has a story. That's right. You know, I, I sometimes have people say to me that, you know, oh, you know, my life is, there's not much. I was like, S start talking to me about it. Tell me what, you know, and everybody has a story. And again, share your stories, talk to people, reach out, understand that people are looking for human connection and um, be proud of who you are. Be proud of who you are. That's right. That's perfect. Simone, again, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be a guest on my podcast. This conversation, this was great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was pretty amazing. Again, thank you. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. It truly was an amazing conversation. Um, I'm so excited that someone wrote a book report on my book. I feel like now <laughs> I am completely done. Um, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. What a wonderful conversation that was, right? Simone Canego's amazing journey is in her book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You, follow your own path, discover your own journey. So we're still in a pandemic. Please wear your mask, wear two masks, wear a face shield, stay six feet apart. Vaccinations are supposedly coming in May. Hopefully that changes things, puts us on or off or changes or alters our journey. Who knows? Let's just enjoy and be faithful and honor and thankful for the path that we're on now. If you have any comments or questions about what was spoken about on this episode or other episodes, please contact me via the social media links on the description page of the episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And more importantly, thank you for listening. <laughs>